0: Hi everyone, my name is Amanda Moses. I am a student in the School of Social Work at the University of Minnesota and the School of Public Health, studying maternal and child health and clinical mental health. And I'm here today as a graduate assistant with both Seed and Cashew. And we're here to interview uh, Rebecca Schlafer who is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota's Medical School. And we will be discussing uh, parental separation and incarceration and how child welfare workers uh, can support families who are dealing with those complex issues. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course, excited to have you. So to get started, um, can you share with us what you're currently working on?
1: Sure. So I think the thing that's probably most relevant to today's conversation is I am currently leading a multi-site project looking at enhanced perinatal programs for pregnant and postpartum people in six state prisons. Um, And this work is we call it the E4P project, so enhanced perinatal programs for people in prison. Um, This work really grew out of the now 10 plus year collaboration that I have with the Minnesota Prison Doula Project, uh, which aims to provide pregnancy and parenting support to people um, initially at the Shakopee Women's Prison in Minnesota, but has expanded to county jails across the state over the last decade, um, and of course has has expanded to other states now in a way that we are um, supporting those programs across the country.
0: Very cool, thank you. What Um, current policies are impacting parents and caregivers who are incarcerated?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, there's policies that are real specific to pregnant people that I think are most relevant. Um, And I'll start there and then think about some of the things that are... coming down the pike potentially. So uh, most relevant to pregnant and postpartum people is the Healthy Start Act that was passed um, last legislative session and signed into law on Mother's Day last year in 2021. And um, that gives the Commissioner of Corrections authority to release uh, pregnant and postpartum people from prison for up to one year into community-based alternatives to incarceration. So really the impetus behind this legislation was to prevent the unnecessary separation of uh, moms and, and infants, so incarcerated moms and infants, because what our data had shown us over the course of the last decade is that Um, the overwhelming majority of women who give birth in custody will be released from prison within the first year of their baby's life. And so what this law permits is is moms to basically be released into community-based alternatives so that they're not separated from their babies. Um, That's really specific to a a real small population of people who are impacted by incarceration, but there are a number of other um, legislative proposals that are on the table um, that are are bigger for families affected by incarceration more generally, including things like. Um, expanded access to free phone calls for incarcerated people in the Minnesota state prisons, which has implications of course for family connectedness and children staying um, connected with their incarcerated parents. Um, in addition to uh, things that we think about about primary prevention, like expanding family home visiting services for um, justice-involved families. So those are things that are you know, on the horizon. We'll see what happens. Um, this is a big question We think about policies, right? Are we talking about yeah. s- state laws? Are we talking about policies in the Department of Corrections or in jails across the
0: state? So the policy that um, what releases people um, after they have their baby, is that new for the entire country as a policy or has that been um, written into law in other states as well that you know of?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the Healthy Start Act is really unique and probably the first of its kind legislation in the country in the way that it that it really gives the commissioner authority to release pregnant and postpartum people. There are some states, um, Wisconsin is one, where there is some legislation that permits um, some flexibility on the judicial sentencing side, so, so pre-sentencing uh, for judges to identify alternatives to incarceration for pregnant people before they're sentenced to prison. And there are a number of other states that think about um, caregiving responsibilities uh, pre-sentencing so that families who might be uh, looking at a parent's incarceration, uh, they, they may have opportunities for alternatives to that incarceration. With the parenting context in mind. Um, And then I will say that, in you know, the Healthy Start Act is really unique in the sense that other states, a few other states, I think eight now, have um, their policy solution to separating pregnant people from their babies uh, after birth has been a prison nursery program. And uh, that would be where moms can co-reside in prison with their babies. And I think there are about eight states that still have these prison nursery programs. And um, the one in New York, Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, is the oldest one in the country um, and is a very robust prison nursery program Um, and is the one where I would say that we have the most evidence about sort of the impacts of moms and babies. Uh, For Minnesota, at least, when we were looking at what is the policy solution for us uh, to respond to not separating moms and babies for me, and I feel pretty strongly that um, opportunities to, to have moms go into community versus bringing babies into prison was the, the, the better policy solution. So um, there are a couple of different sort of ways that states have addressed this, but I would say that ours is, is quite unique in that respect.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, what would you say are the, the populations that are most disproportionately uh, represented?
1: Yeah, so when we think about the criminal legal system broadly, we know that community uh, communities of color um, are disproportionately impacted by the criminal legal system, and at every phase of the criminal legal system, right? So black and brown people are more likely to be arrested than white people. They are they have uh, harsher sentences for the same crime. They end up doing longer periods of time in prison and jail um, than than white folks, even for the same or similar crimes. And then um, for pregnant people in particular, uh, really, really profound racial disparities in our state among Native American and indigenous women. So while Native women make up you know less than 1% of our state's population, they're about 25% of the, the pregnant people who are in our state prison. And I think that just speaks to um, the real underlying uh, systemic, Mm-hmm. inequities in our state that are driving um indigenous women into the prison system and uh really points to challenges around
0: historical trauma and forced separation of of indigenous families that's a huge gap um in thinking about the indigenous community and communities of color what concerns do you have when thinking aside from the fact that they're disproportionately affected when thinking about these populations, but particularly for children?
1: Yeah, it's a great, another great question. I think that there are just so many aspects of intersecting marginalization, right? So these are families that are also more likely to be um, families that have low income. They have often are housing insecure or are unemployed or underemployed. If they have health insurance, it's often state health insurance, which may uh, provide additional barriers to accessing preventative health care or substance use and mental health counseling. And so... Again, I think about all of the ways in which these families experience marginalization, and there are systemic challenges that mean that their needs are not being met. Um, and so, when I think then about their involvement in the criminal legal system, right? So they're disproportionately, be, you know, impacted by the criminal legal system, but they also have all of these other challenges that preceded the incarceration, uh, and then additional challenges at release. And I think, what does this mean for? For their children, right? When we consider the intergenerational consequences, it just means a whole nother generation that has been um, negatively impacted by these these systems, which are replicating
0: inequities across um, across generations in this country. And I would imagine too, with uh, you know people of color, the it's more common for the head of household to be a mom. That you know, if they're then not present to be able to maintain that health care and be filling out that paperwork, that that leads to even more disruption.
1: Absolutely. And we know there are really important differences in what happens to kids when moms go to jail or prison versus when dads go to jail or prison, right? So when dads are incarcerated, kids are most often, living with their their moms, right? And so there is not that same level of often um, necessarily that the kid has to move primary caregivers, which is not the case when moms are incarcerated because when moms are incarcerated, they were more likely to be primary caregivers and those kids end up in, in a variety of different caregiving arrangements. Um, but we know that, that this incarceration can often set off a domino effect of other challenges in the family system, right? So Um, financial instability, housing instability. So there's what we talk about as collateral consequences for the family system. And some of those preceded the period of incarceration, right, where the family was already on sort of precarious footing with their housing or their finances. And then the incarceration just sort of layers on a level of, of uncertainty
0: and unpredictability that we know is really bad for kids. Wow. What are kind of shifting gears here Uh, common practices in prisons and jails for parents and and parenting?
1: Yeah, I think probably the flip of this question is sort of there aren't really common practices, right? I think one of the things that has been so startling to me over um, more than a decade of doing this work is just how different every prison is and how every jail is and how, um, I guess, the, the common thread here is how little attention prisons and jails have paid to parents in particular. Um, I have, you know, heard corrections administrators say things like, the only thing I need in this facility is officers and inmates. And the idea that um, incarcerated people are parents too is often an afterthought. And I think that is such a short-sighted frame when we consider that most of the people who are in prisons and jails are parents with minor children. The overwhelming majority of people who are incarcerated are getting out and returning to community and uh, will will have relationships with their children and families. And we have done very little to support them during their period of incarceration or help to uh, you know, promote positive parenting behaviors, promote supportive parent-child visitation, and, and so I think the common practice there, I would say sort of two themes and what I've seen is really huge variation across facilities um, and very little attention paid to this issue in a way that I think
0: we have a lot of work to do. Right. Yeah. I um, started to kind of poke around and look at, you know, what are practices around visitation or communicating and, you know, as you mentioned, there really aren't any or it's, vastly different. H- have you n- noted any successes with any of the the um, prisons or jails that you've worked with around extended visiting or? Yeah, let's talk, I mean, generally first about sort of
1: what does it look like, right, between yeah. prisons and jails. So jails are short-term facilities where people generally are there pre-adjudication, meaning they haven't yet been sentenced, um, or they're short, they're sentenced, but they're sentenced for shorter sentences. And Jails, the visiting environments are almost uniformly non-contact visits, meaning that any visitors, minor children included, would be, if they are permitted to come on site, they are visiting a parent through a closed circuit sort of television, a crummy FaceTime is the way I would describe it, where they come on site and they're looking at a, a computer screen and they are picking up a telephone receiver and talking to their parent uh, who is somewhere else in the jail on the other side with, again, just a computer screen. Or in sort of the best, I'm putting best in air quotes situation, uh, air quotes here, um, in the best circumstances for non-contact visits, families can come on site and they're seeing their loved one through plexiglass, still picking up the phone, but at least it's not through this this sort of crummy technology that exists in the facilities. Um, Those are non-contact visits and pretty uniformly the case for jails. And I think that this is a common misconception that people have that somehow jails um, are, you know, less risky, less secure, or or less um, intense, and therefore families have more access. But actually, as my corrections colleagues have helped me understand over the years, like That because of the turnover and because they're getting literally everyone from, you know, your sort of -of run-of-the-mill DUI to the mass murderer coming through jail, that actually the security in there, the folks that I worked with in corrections have said to me, like, this is, people in prison are a known quantity, meaning that they've had a chance, they've been sentenced, we have a sense to understand how long they're going to be in the prison, they've been classified, meaning that they're in the right, theoretically the right prison for their security level. And so there's more known about that individual versus in jails where sort of this constant churn increases some of the challenges with regard to safety and security. And I give that context because I think that we see the jail environment for children and families being much more locked down. Um, There are very few jails that offer any kind of meaningful visiting opportunity for children and families with with a parent in a jail. That's different than in prison. I would say, again, um, these are not generally child-friendly, developmentally appropriate spaces, and very little thought has gone into making these environments um, spaces that are not re-traumatizing or experiences that are not re-traumatizing for kids, That said, there are some really model practices where folks have done a lot of intentionality, done a lot of thinking and intentionality around making these experiences um, a bit more developmentally appropriate. And by that, I would mean things like making sure that there are rules in place that permit the the child to go to the bathroom if they need to and return to the visit, right? I mean, in, in many places, if you need to go to the bathroom during the middle of the visit, the visit is over, right? So kids Mm -hmm. have to go to the bathroom and kids are not great at telling us when they're going to need to go to the bathroom, right? And anybody who's a parent, of course, (laughs) knows that anytime we're getting ready to do something, someone will say, hey, should we, should we try going to the bathroom before we do X, Y, and Z, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so many, many folks have talked about the ways in which these practices can be altered to be more developmentally appropriate, as simple as visits don't get stopped if kids have to go to the bathroom or allowing kids to bring in pre-packaged snacks so that they can eat during the visit, Um, allowing longer periods of visits, Um, and then policies and practices in these spaces that allow kids to get up and move around. Many facilities require that kids sit on laps. They can't go back and forth between, you know, the caregiver who brought them and the incarcerated parent. They have to stay seated at all times. They can't move. Um, And, you know, I can't I have a hard time sitting still for any period of time at this point. The idea that we would expect a a three-year-old to sit on a lap and sit there during any significant amount of time is really just inconsistent with what we know about kiddos and And then, really, right, opportunities for m- when we talk about extended visits, these are visiting environments where there's been a lot of thought and intentionality around making these spaces appropriate for kids where kids can get on the floor with their parents, play games, do a puzzle, read a book together they they really have a much more natural environment which, in which they can interact with their parents, right? Their moms can braid their hair, their dads can play a game with them. And these kinds of visiting experiences are really few and far between.
0: Um, how would you say the pandemic has impacted these visiting I'm putting this in air quotes too, practices. Yeah. Oof. I mean, in all of the
1: ways, right? In all of the ways that the pandemic impacted all of our lives, it's just been that magnified by, um, you know, a a really, really complicated setting in um, a carceral space. So for a significant period of time, prisons and jails really, truly just shut down all visiting. Um, Folks were on more or less lockdown for a period of time, right? Meaning that they're, we're not allowed to leave their living units. Um, and I think that's really challenged, right? This, the availability of visiting at all. We've seen visiting come back online, um, meaning that individuals now can come back to prison and see their loved one at, and and visit, but we've seen huge disruptions in that, right? So visiting opens and then there's two COVID cases in the facility and then visiting closes again. And so really challenging for when we think about kids and their unpredictability about, you know, what will this look like? And as parents in the last year, we've all, two years, we've all struggled with having to tell our kids that we don't know what's going to happen and maybe we'll go to school or maybe we won't. And this is just really layered on a lot. And then I, I think not uh, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that one of the other real challenges that these environments are having, the prisons and jails, like across the country and many sectors, is real challenges having enough staff. And so even as we've seen the pandemic wane and fewer concerns about people being infected, we they just the facilities don't simply have enough staff to have visiting open and available. And so they don't have enough staff to do sort of standard operations, which means that even if it's safe from a COVID perspective to be visiting in person, we are still seeing all of these additional barriers that families are experienced to actually being able to have contact with their loved ones, which adds additional layers of complexity for these families, which I think are really unique and and challenging. Yeah.
0: Kind of on the the flip side of that regarding the pandemic, have you seen any kind of I don't know. Uh maybe preliminary positive results of, you know, a lot of the early release that has happened because of the pandemic and like, you know, if recidivism is going to go up, what what have yeah. you seen so far?
1: I think it remains to be seen. Really, we have seen tremendous reductions at the state level and at the local level in jails in the number of people who are incarcerated in the state and across the country which I think speaks to kind of two things, right? We were not seeing people being processed through the carceral system in the same way, through the criminal legal system. So when courts were shut down, people weren't being processed in, in the same way. And you mentioned the idea of people being released, right? And so there were a number of mechanisms at the beginning of the pandemic to really get people that didn't need to be there out of prison um, and using some legal mechanisms to release folks from, from jails and prisons and not holding them, right? So if folks who are in jail, tra- judges making decisions to try to get people out of jail, I think we're going to see tremendous fluctuations uh, re- probably by judicial district and and court to court, probably judge to judge, and a little bit of um, variation uh, within states and, acro- and, and across states, right? In terms of... <sighs> All of the things that get wrapped in here in terms of like, how will judges want to process these cases moving forward? Um, What is their own risk tolerance for bringing people back into their courtrooms? It's just so complex. And I'm not a criminologist or a big court watcher. So I really, I I hesitate to say much more in terms of like, what will we expect? I'd like to hope um, that some, many communities have seen the reductions in the jail populations in their communities and thought like, This gives us an opportunity to do something differently. You know, we've had this just major shock to the system. And is there a different way to be doing this than we have been? Um, So I guess we'll see. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Shifting again, I want to talk more about pregnancy and kind of what that process looks like if you are pregnant and um, are incarcerated and know, you know, you're going to have this baby while you are serving a sentence.
1: Yeah, so in Minnesota, what that looks like pre-COVID and pre-Healthy Start Act really was that um, everyone who comes to uh, the women's prison in Shakopee, Minnesota, so that's our state's only women's prison, Everyone who comes to prison is, um, who is between the ages, I think, of 18 and maybe 55, I think that's the, the cap there, is is pregnancy tested upon admission. So there's a health screen and everyone is pregnancy tested. Anyone who is identified as pregnant is referred to the parenting coordinator at the facility who provides some additional information about resources and supports that are available at the women's prison, which um, at the women's prison here in Minnesota is the Minnesota Prison Doula Project, which provides provides weekly prenatal education and support, in addition to pairing any person who wants one, any pregnant person who wants one, a doula who will provide um, physical, emotional, and informational support throughout pregnancy, labor and birth, and the postpartum period. So our pregnant um, folks at Shakopee have access to group-based education and support during their pregnancy. They get one-on-one support during that time. And when they go into labor and are transferred to a local hospital for birth, Um, the doula meets them at the hospital and provides continuous labor and, and birth support. And then is also there at the hospital um, for what we call a separation visit, and that is about 48 hours after the, the mom has given birth, and she's going to go back to the prison and the baby will go with an elected caregiver in the community, and the doula is there to support her during that, that separation. And then um, when the mom is back at the prison, the doula is able to meet with her one-on-one postpartum and provide some additional, mostly emotional support about how that how she's doing, Uh, COVID has really disrupted all of that. We had some gaps in our doulas ability to meet with their clients and be there. Our group-based support has really been on hold for a consistent period of time. And I think as the prisons open back up and there's uh, more staffing, there's going to be more capacity to get back in and and resume the programming as it were pre-COVID. Um, but that's generally sort of what, what the experience is like for pregnant,
0: pregnant people at the facility. Mm -hmm. I mean 48 hours that's you know you you you've barely processed the fact that you've just given birth um at that point how would you say that initial separation impacts you know their bonding and any sort of attachment that could i mean develop in that period.
1: Yeah, and I would say 48 hours is sort of, at least in Minnesota, sort of average. We know that in other states across the country, that separation happens in an even shorter period of time. Um, Here in Minnesota, it is pretty consistent with sort of standard hospital discharge. So when a person in the community would be discharged from the hospital, right? About 48 hours after a vaginal delivery, shorter during COVID, right? The ideas of trying to get people out of hospital more quickly um, wow. and 72 hours with a cesarean birth, but that has, you know, again, really challenging and thinking about even three days is not long enough with one's baby. Um, and I think to your point, right? So, so many emotions, uh, f- even for a mom who is about to take a baby home, right? A lot of, um, tremendous hormonal shifts that are happening in those periods of time biological um, changes that are really challenging for the birthing person and then to layer on this separation from their baby I think that we know this is just one of the the most, Incredible periods of grief and pain that our clients experience. Um, Not having been through that myself, I can only just reflect on what I have heard from them about just this, you know, excruciating loss and separation. Uh, And I think again, you know, how how they cope is just remarkable to me in terms of sort of the the ways in which and the differences in families, right? You know, I think one of the things that Uh, the prenatal education group really aims to do for pregnant people is, is help moms not try to disconnect from this pregnancy because you can imagine a real coping strategy is like, I'm just not going to think about this pregnancy. I'm going to be separated from this baby. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to bond with it. You know, in the prenatal period, I don't want to make any plans and just like disconnect. And I think that's a, a totally reasonable coping strategy, right? That we could understand why a mom would feel that way. Um, and really trying to think about how we can help um moms in the pregnancy period think about ways to connect with their with their pregnancies and um what they can do uh to help be healthy for their for their babies at that point. In the postpartum period, you know, really tremendously depends on what that caregiving relationship is like, what the alternative caregiving relationship where the baby goes. Um you know we have a majority of the moms who give birth in our program end up um, their babies go with maternal grandmothers uh-huh. and, and so then it then the question is, well, what is the relationship like with the maternal grandmother and the biological mom right? Is there a strong relationship there? there is you know strong emotional connections between, across these three generations at this point? Um, are those grandparents in a capacity to be able to bring those babies in for visiting or provide updates to the mom? And it, it, in all of that, in the best circumstances, right, the mom and her baby are still physically separated. And so what it means in terms of parent child attachment, right, is, um, really, hard for moms to feel emotionally and physically connected to their babies in this period of time, um, even if they're having regular visits. And, and I think that really, when we think about sort of the developmental consequences of this, it really then shines the light on the critical importance of the caregiver-child relationship and the importance of setting strong attachment foundations for that baby with that alternative caregiver so that when mom is released, that baby is, is able in a position, right, from a secure attachment standpoint to know, like, yep, my needs will be met when I cry. I have a caregiver who I can depend on and trust. And and I think when we could think about this from the caregiver side of things, too. Like, if you've taken a baby home from the hospital and you think, OK, I got to just, like, do this for the next six months, right? I got to just wait till my daughter gets out of prison and I got to just and you're just going through the motions, um, the, those are sort of six critical months in that baby's life that it, it is desperately needing the foundation of a parent-child relationship and a secure attachment that's, that's setting this foundation for I can get, depend on my caregiver for love and support. I can have my needs met, right? I, I will get what I need from my caregiver when I'm crying, when I'm hungry, when I'm wet. And I think really challenging to think about the fact that these caregivers often are not getting any support for taking a newborn home from the hospital um, and getting what they need to be um, healthy and whole caregivers in this, again, unpredictable and temporary, often temporary situation.
0: Right. And who knows, you know, if they know what, updated, you know, information is out there around car seat safety or just, you know, it's like every generation there's, you know, something new um, to, to, or something that's different. Um, are incarcerated people who, after they give birth, are they able to lactate or, you know, produce pump milk and if so, can they get it to their babies? And what, do, what does that look like? Great question. We've come a long
1: way on this issue in Minnesota over the last 12 years, and we have a long way to go still. Other states are doing this um, in a much uh, more robust way than we are. So right naturally they will come back to prison and they their bodies will be producing breast milk right these facilities generally speaking have done very little to respond to the biological processes of lactation for a long time right we would have clients who would tear up old socks and put them in their bras for breast pads um, because the very basics weren't being met um, or or moms who are trying to hand express their breast milk just to sort of release the pressure that comes with um milk letting down. So, uh, we've come a long way in the sense that, um, uh, at Shakopee at the women's prison, uh, we are, our clients are able to pump their breast milk for a long time. They didn't even have access to breast pumps. They do have access to breast pumps. And for a long time, then the policy, when we had breast pumps was, it was, it was, uh, more or less pump and dump. So they were allowed to express their breast milk just to essentially um, discard the milk. Uh, In the last, gosh, six months to a year, there has been more active work around pumping and storing breast milk under the conditions under which um, someone was gonna be released into community over a short period of time. So I don't remember offhand uh, sort of what the criteria are for that, but, Moms who will be released into community in a relatively short window are able to pump and store their breast milk. And we have a a doula from our program who is able to come and pick up the breast milk and bring it to a caregiver in the community. I think we've been able to successfully do that now for two two babies. Uh, so I say we have a long way to go because some other states have really beautiful um, rooms where moms can go, come and go at any point of the day. In Alabama, our sister program down there, the Alabama Prison Birth Project, they have this room that they've been uh, able to create with and get donations for with these two rockers. Um, there are storage where the moms can come and pick up their, the breast milk, or excuse me, the breast pump. They have their, the breast pump supplies there they can get access to the room throughout the day they can pump they can store their milk they label and freeze their milk and then that milk is shipped to the caregiver frozen in the community and can go straight to baby so there is a way to do this better uh, right. moms in minnesota cannot chest feed if baby comes on site for visiting so imagine right that you in the best of world right you could imagine a a caregiver who could bring the baby um on site for visits, even then, moms can't chest feed, and and really unreasonable to think about the frequency with which babies need to eat. Um, being able to to chest or breastfeed uh, throughout any regular period of time is is essentially impossible for these moms, which is um, incredibly unfortunate, and and exactly what we mean when we say we've got a long way to go on this issue.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine if they did have the opportunity to. Um, still be able to lactate and then if they're not able to chest feed directly but get the baby the milk that that would really impact how they're framing this how they're feeling about their baby and feeling like i i am participating and i am i am able to do something really incredible for this baby.
1: I think that's exactly right. And i think, you know, our in Alabama, the incredible lactation consultant there, Chantal Norris is just like this amazing human being who helps moms understand the gift, this really incredible gift that that moms can give their babies even despite these heartbreaking circumstances, right? That they And I think our clients um, who are pumping and storing their breast milk and that it's getting to their babies do really truly feel like this is um, something that they're doing from their baby and, and restorative in many ways, right? So many of our moms um, and, and clients just feel this tremendous amount of guilt around their actions that have led to this insult to their babies start to life, right? And I think for many, the capacity to store their breast milk and get it to their baby is one act of restoration, trying to to fix some of those harms that they they carry a lot of guilt around, and understandably so.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine that guilt is just, and the separation, I mean, all, all of these risk factors for postpartum depression or anxiety or
1: Right. And then think about
0: how that feels when you do get out of prison and you don't feel
1: connected to this baby and that baby is potentially attached to an alternative caregiver. And and one of the things that I think we have a, still a lot of work to do to help caregivers in the community and moms in prison is um, with some of that reunification, right? When babies, when moms come home, recognizing that it is a good thing, actually, that that baby is attached to um to the alternative caregiver because that baby can now learn to dance with someone else, right? And, and actually being in a secure attachment relationship, even with an alternative caregiver, doesn't mean that that baby can't form an attachment with biological mom, um, but allows that baby to know, again, I will have my needs met in sort of these really important foundational ways that attachment sets, just this this
0: clear foundation for all future social and emotional development. Right. Um, in kind of thinking, maybe we could think about, um, since we're, we're talking about attachment, maybe older children, what concerns rise to the top for you with respect to older children and as it relates to their healthy development?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, think across the board here, just we know that again, incarceration causes so many disruptions to to families and can compromise children's healthy development. And that's true if we're talking about infants separated from their moms. It's also true about teenagers who are separated from their parents too. And I think one of the things that we talked about earlier is the sort of constellation of risks that these families often experience in terms of uh, housing and parent mental health and parent substance use. And so I think those are the sort of things that surround the, the involvement in the criminal legal system that we know can compromise um, healthy child development. And so for me, when I think about concerns, broad concerns for, for children, I think about how do we think about primary prevention upfront t- for, for many of these issues, right? How do we make sure that we think about housing as a human right? How do we make sure that um, families have, have enough food to eat? And for many of our families that are involved in the criminal legal system, they're just, there are so many, as we said earlier, a- aspects of intersecting marginalization that can compromise healthy development.
0: Yeah, it's really about those basic needs. And then going from there. Um, what would you say child welfare workers can do to advocate for incarcerated parents? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: I mean, I think when you have a case with a currently incarcerated parent, it's really important to recognize that, you know, the state laws very clearly say that you just because the parent is incarcerated doesn't mean they don't need to be um, apprised of what's going on with the court case. In fact, they, under statute, need to be informed in timely ways about what's happening. They need to be considered um, active participants. And and workers do need to work a little bit harder to make sure that that information gets into parents in a timely way and that parents, incarcerated parents have the opportunity to participate in case plans regarding their children. And this is true. I mean, I think so often about, um, you know, hearing workers say things like, oh, well, dad's incarcerated, so we don't have to worry about him. And right. it's like recognizing that actually in that that incarcerated dad has a network, too, that may be wonderful resources for these children. Um, dad may be getting out soon, right, thinking about what that means for the kids. So, again, just thinking about um not writing off incarcerated parents and and being mindful of sort of the biases that often come with what, what folks think about parents who are incarcerated and recognizing, um, the importance of engaging them, um, throughout the process and thinking about parents in, in really robust case plans to be able to help sustain connections with children.
0: Right. Yeah. They're the, you know, parents who are incarcerated, they're not on ice. They're still parents. Um, what would you say child welfare workers can do to support a sustained connection with their children?
1: Yeah, one of the I mean most practical things I always say is find out where the parent is incarcerated and get a better sense of what the visiting and environment is like and what the rules around contact are, because I think there is you know this sort of belief that somehow visitation would be harmful to kids. And I would say that not visiting can also be harmful to kids, right? But it really depends on the circumstance and so critically important for child welfare workers to understand the relationship between the parent and child pre-incarceration. What was that relationship like? Um, and when it is really thinking about a sustained connection here, this was a parent who was actively involved in his child's life, the separation um, is, is really a hard one for that kid thinking about what are the creative ways in which moms and dads can stay connected right so is that letter writing is it video calls is it being able to support the incarcerated parent reading and recording a book to their child that the worker can then uh, make sure it gets to the child um, and then being thoughtful about all of the ways in which these systems can be flexed uh, to support parent-child connection if there's somebody advocating for that. And really, when there is a court order that says parents and children, you know, need to be able to have contact, um, I think those are really important motivators for for families to be able to, to stay connected with their kids and does force systems to be a bit more attentive to following those court orders as well.
0: Yeah what about sustaining the the connection for for the incarcerated parent with their partner with their co-parent or maybe with whoever is providing care for their children
1: yeah i think great opportunities there to encourage like co-parenting support for one another having conversations about you know developmental milestones or conversations about what's happened with the kid at school today and what what you know if they're going to a doctor's appointment or if they had a parent teacher conference and some counseling and support around co-parenting, right? A lot can happen between co-parents that, that helps an incarcerated parent feel involved, right? And I think those are opportunities for workers to think about how can we help incarcerated parents stay connected to, to their, you know, alternative caregivers or their partners so that they can maintain solid relationships and then maintain access and, and supportive relationships with the kids.
0: Yeah, I would imagine having that connection to both the child welfare worker and then whoever is providing care. Those multiple avenues of communication are really important.
1: Yeah, and so hard in a system where incarcerated parents can't receive phone calls, right? And mail takes way, way, way longer to get to the incarcerated parent. And um, the level of communication is, is not functionally bidirectional. That is incredibly challenging for incarcerated parents in these spaces. So I think, That's a great way of thinking about, you know, child welfare workers can do a lot to connect with the prison case manager or the parenting coordinator at these facilities to make sure that they can have more um, access to the incarcerated parent so that they can have more regular communication um, while the parent's incarcerated. Not necessarily relying on the incarcerated
0: parent to have to try to make the phone calls or catch the worker during, you know, business hours there's so much here and so much to dig through. So thank you for sharing all of this kind of maybe to try to, you know, tie this up um, and encourage people to kind of continue thinking about how to maintain that involvement. What would you say are the things that are most important for child welfare workers to keep in mind when they're working with families who are dealing with separation and incarceration?
1: Yeah, great question. I think First and foremost, really thinking about this is um, an incredibly common issue that we don't think about, right? Many, many children in this state, millions of children in this country are impacted by a parent's incarceration and there are no cookie cutter answers for this, right? Each family is unique uh, and we really need to take time to think about the unique circumstances for what's gonna be in each child's best interest as it relates to their incarcerated parent and their family system, so I think really being mindful of the fact that this is this is more common than we've given it credit for I mean something that I think is a tremendous stain on our United States sort of way of doing social problems right mm-hmm. um, these are this is not a this is not a system that has done much to um, improve uh the the challenges the social challenges that our country faces um and I don't think that we can incarcerate our way out of the complex social issues that we face and so I think incredibly common issue that requires a real family centered child centered approach to think through the unique needs for each of the families that we're working with so those are sort of the two take homes that I would would think through, just like the, the how common it is and um, how we really need to be mindful of centering kids' needs in these conversations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. This was great. Yeah, what what a
1: great opportunity to talk about these issues. So thanks again for the invite. Thank you for listening to the Early Development and Child Welfare podcast series. This podcast was supported in part by the Minnesota Department of Human Service, Children and Family Services Division.